Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. As usual, my name is Zach and I'll be guiding you through this latest installment of the Franco-Dutch War. Before we begin, a small amount of housekeeping has to be done. As you may have noticed by the date, today is the 19th of December, which means that Christmas is almost upon us, which also means that I will be far too busy filling my face and catching up with all these people I've ignored for this entire year to do actual podcasting which unfortunately means as well that we'll be on a bit of a hiatus for the Christmas slash happy holidays slash winter break. So I hope you guys don't mind too much, but I'm sure you'll have far too much to do anyway, and far too much catching up and far too much face-feeding yourselves to be worried about when diplomacy fails. It should go without saying that I wish you guys all a very safe and very happy holidays. Wherever you are in the world, I hope that the end of this year, thank god 2016 is nearly over, I hope that it brings you some peace and happiness. So that's the nice stuff. This stuff which follows is probably less nice, although if you're me it's great because, well first of all I get to thank you guys for your monetary support so far. Since my last somewhat shameless appeal I've received a good few donations so that's really really great. Thanks in particular to Michael McCormick, Timothy Furman, And a little while ago, Derek Upham, who actually did give me a donation, but I forgot to thank him for it. So thank you guys all very much. It's quite amazing, really, that through my simple appeal, I've been able to get you guys to give your hard-earned cash. It's very encouraging. But if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, hey, do you know what? I probably could give, like, just a little tiny bit, but I don't have a large purse lying around with which to give a donation. Well, that's fine. Number one, you can keep doing what you're doing with your emotional support and keep being fit and getting the news of when diplomacy fails out there, guys, which would be really, really appreciated. But number two, what you could do is, if you think you're in a position to, give a little tiny bit every month. And actually, in some ways, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but I'm just going to be honest right now, this is probably the most effective way to support the podcast because... It means that I can say I have X amount of money coming in every month from podcasting. And if it's something as small as 1 or 2 euro 50, then you're not really going to notice it, are you? I mean, there's some crazy people out there who give 20 euro or 10 euro or 5 euro. You know who you guys are and it's super appreciated. But before the year is out, I kind of just wanted to emphasize that the regular subscribe donation options really do help when diplomacy fails out. And they really help me out because it means I can somewhat rely on a somewhat regular income and that's obviously wonderful when you're a podcaster 
If you're kind of wishing I would just shut up about the whole thing, just hear me out. I have a small, well, I suppose you could call it incentive, to maybe get more people to sign up. I've decided to do something that you may or may not agree with, but in line with getting as many people on board with subscribing as possible, I've decided to do a kind of t-shirt giveaway. The idea is, if I get 10 more subscribers for the monthly donation options, then I'll be able to start this t-shirt giveaway. How is it going to work? Well, the idea is, four times a year, so every quarter, if you like to be financial about it, every quarter of the year, I will enter everyone who is a subscriber into a specific draw, and then the winner I will contact through email or otherwise, and let them know that their name has, well, been picked out. And then they can decide what t-shirt they want, what size, what color, and obviously give me their address, etc. I feel like it's a good way to give back to you guys, and you might think it's a bit counterproductive buying a t-shirt with the money that I got from your donations, but the deal I get with t-shirts is such that it doesn't actually change, well, my income all that much, and it's quite good value, really, so... I'd be very happy to do that, and it also means, of course, by sending you a t-shirt, you'll be wearing it and you'll be representing. I should add that people in the Agora Podcast Network, well, podcasters more specifically, have been weighing up the idea of doing mid-roll ads. In other words, ads that are on halfway through the podcast rather than just at the beginning or the end. Because I've never really noticed ads in my podcast, although I know that they're there, I was weighing up the idea, but then it occurred to me that, number one, I said I wasn't going to do mid-roll ads, and then number two, mid-roll ads will be inserted just at random at a certain time frame within each episode, and unless you actually prepare for the mid-roll ads, they would really disrupt the narrative, and I don't want to go down that route. And that has been a difficult decision. I had to really roll back my own ambitions for making money because they all tell us Acast tells us in the Agora Podcast Network that mid-roll ads are the best way to get revenue for podcasting. But I don't want to be greedy, and this was always just a hobby anyway, so I just wanted to let you guys know that that was being talked about, and that instead of, well for better or worse, instead of going with the mid-roll ads, I've decided to just beg you guys for regular subscriptions for the donation option instead. So if it sounds like something you'd be able to do and you think you'd like a free t-shirt yourself, then go to wdfpodcast.com or wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie and sign up to donate a regular small amount every month today. I would really appreciate it, guys. My future wife would be very proud and so would my family. And hey, you'd be doing a good thing. And if enough of you get on board, a free t-shirt may be forthcoming. Okay, I'm not going to waste any more of your time. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. Sometimes you just gotta beg the man for money, because, hey, adulting is hard. I mean, on other news, I booked the honeymoon and we have got an apartment, so bills are incoming, all that kind of thing, and I'll be moving over the Christmas break, so, yeah, I do need money. (laughs) And uh, I think doing all this adulting has kind of shown me exactly how expensive adulting is. So, yes... Regular subscription donations would be wonderful. Okay, enough of that. Let's get into the show. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Franco-Dutch War. 
Last time we examined how the Triple Alliance of Sweden, the Dutch and Britain came into being and what it was that made it so insulting to Louis XIV. We learned to not underestimate Charles II's diplomacy and we also saw that affairs weren't as straightforward as history normally presents them. In this episode we do a small recap to make sure we're all on the same page and we then examine those revelations which brought the secret articles of the Triple Alliance out into the open, and thus so offended Louis, and thus made sure that the Franco-Dutch alliance was effectively dead in the water. I will now take you to early 1668. Anger is an affected madness, compounded of pride and folly and an intention to do commonly more mischief than it can bring to pass, and, without doubt, of all passions which actually disturb the mind of man, it is most in our power to extinguish, at least to suppress and correct, our anger. Edward Hyde, the first Earl of Clarendon. Scheming and manipulative were perhaps the best adjectives for Charles II's foreign policy, as 1668 began. On the other hand, though, there was a stroke of genius in the act of getting the Dutch to agree to a secret set of clauses which, when revealed, would mightily offend the nominal Dutch ally since 1662, the French. When news of the Triple Alliance between Sweden, England and the Netherlands began to leak out in late January 1668, Johann de Witt sought to present it not as an anti-French league, but as a coalition dedicated to maintaining peace in Europe. De Witt, the leading man in Dutch politics for over a decade by this point, at no point trusted Charles' intentions or the expressions of friendship that Britain proposed. But by mid-January 1668, as we saw in the last episode, he was in something of a bind. Three factors to sum up what we learned last time can explain why DeWitt felt forced to throw his lot in with the British and Swedes, even while he didn't particularly relish the prospect of sharing the stage with either. It's probably a little more in-depth of a catch-up than we need, but I feel it'll remind us of the era we're in quite effectively. So let's go. First of all, We saw last time how DeWitt's tricky position in domestic Dutch politics was far from secure, though the wily Grand Pensionary understood that France was the best ally the Dutch could hope for, and though he had made great strides in persuading and negotiating with Louis XIV to take only a certain amount of Spanish territory, DeWitt's political opponents felt less confident. Anti-French opinion in the Netherlands was one of those passions that could be roused or diffused periodically, depending on the news from abroad. Anti-French feeling was often associated with pro-Orange or even pro-British feeling, and in the recently ended Second Anglo-Dutch War, it had been the Orangist party that came close to throwing in the towel in the name of the whole Dutch Republic. 
only to falter at the last moment from lack of support. This segment of Dutch society was in constant battle with the pro-French, anti-Orange and, nominally at least, anti-British, regent merchant class, sourced mostly from Holland. De Witt represented these regent folks, and they had enjoyed power since 1650, but their power seemed to be waning in the face of the French invasion of the Spanish Netherlands and amidst the campaign of hysteria that was promoted by the anti-French Orangists. This was a problem, because as the popularity of the French waned, in the States General the anti-French party gained more support among the national representatives of the various Dutch provinces. When news of the French invasion, combined with talk of a British alliance, seemed to confirm the Orangists' dreams, it became harder and harder to rally against anti-French opinion. At the level of the States General, De Witt's position was mostly ceremonial, and only in the States of Holland could he exact real executive powers. He could exercise no independent action of his own in the Dutch National Parliament, and so De Witt capitulated to the will of the majority, although certainly he wasn't happy about it, and he agreed to sign the Triple Alliance with Britain and the Swedes, in an effort to appease the anti-French elements of Dutch society, who perhaps believed that he had gone too soft on the French in the past. So if domestic pressure explains De Witt's decision to sign on the dotted line, the second factor can be explained from the fact of the day that De Witt was willing to sign an alliance with London if it proved necessary. Yet this willingness comes with a significant caveat, so let's explain what I mean here. De Witt did not want so much to sign an alliance with London as to use the probability of such an agreement to suggest to Louis that peace between France and Spain must be signed. It is this aspect of De Witt's thinking that history normally injects into the Triple Alliance, where we are told that De Witt went for the Triple Alliance because he feared what Louis was doing on his doorstep, and he signed with London to pressure Louis to back down, which Louis took as an insult, hence the Franco-Dutch War. Yet if we accept that version of history, then we present De Witt as a complete fool. After years in public service, and after acquiring a wealth of experience in foreign affairs, we seriously underrate De Witt's capabilities and skills if we claim that the wily Dutchman didn't believe that he could have both regional security and the French alliance. In other words, rather than cry foul and end the beneficial alliance with the French once Louis invaded the Spanish Netherlands in May... 1667, De Witt instead negotiated with Louis' agents directly to arrive at a compromise where the French would go no further than a certain amount of fortresses and towns. Our good friend Herbert H. Rowan, in his article that we introduced in the last episode, Johann De Witt and the Triple Alliance, echoed the fact that De Witt had more faith in Louis than he did in the possibility of an alliance with London. Rowan wrote, In January 1668, De Witt was still confident of French agreement. He hoped that French moderation would help him to escape the pressure from his adversaries in the States General for outright collaboration with England. So the second point is, after all that rambling, was that though De Witt appreciated the value in negotiating with Louis, and though he did not want to tie himself to London and abandon his French alliance, He also had to prove to Louis that an alliance with the British was within his reach. Well, think about it. If De Witt was reported to have failed in negotiations to arrive at an Anglo-Dutch alliance, 
Every British diplomat from Budapest to Berlin would present the version of the story to Louis which made London, and Louis's cousin Charles, appear the stronger, while De Witt would be presented as the weaker player. In spheres of diplomacy, it doesn't necessarily always matter what the truth is. If De Witt and Louis could operate together on the mutual understanding that the Dutch would be able to recruit British help when it came down to it, but it was then understood that such negotiations had broken down, then De Witt's capabilities and Dutch power would be dramatically reduced in Louis's eyes. What was more, with Charles's agents consistently in the Sun King's ear, the British version was far more likely to be believed as the truth. This had as much to do with Louis wanting to believe that the Dutch were weak, a belief he carried to his grave despite everything, and which he would display frequently in the coming war, as it did to the close family ties of Bourbon and Stuart. Entire libraries could be filled on the importance of maintaining your reputation in the minds of your rivals and friends. If Louis believed that De Witt was weaker or had fewer options than he had had before, perhaps France would not be so lenient at the peace table, and perhaps Dutch security would even be in doubt. If you're still with us then, you'll see why De Witt felt pressed to agree to the British offer once it was made. Though it definitely threw a spanner in the works of his plans, the dilemma was that if he didn't accept London's overtures relatively quickly, Britain would or could back out, and future options for an alliance would evaporate, and then the scales would fall from Louis' eyes. In a sense, you could even say that De Witt's bluff had been called, because he had for so long operated on the understanding that, if needs must, he would be able to recruit a coalition against France, based on the mutual fears and ambitions of Europe's powers. In De Witt's mind, though, and this is the key point, it was too early for such a coalition, in January 1668, because his own diplomacy had diffused much of the danger that Louis posed. But if he said no definitively to Britain now, then it would seem as though such a coalition was never within his grasp from the outset. Perhaps the only reason De Witt's negotiations with Louis had been so successful was not because the Dutch and French were allies, but because Louis believed that if he behaved too recklessly or greedily in the Spanish Netherlands, then he would force Britain and the Dutch to team up against him. Would Louis remain so accommodating or even diplomatically reachable if De Witt was known to have lost the not-so-secret option of an alliance with Britain? The second point is thus a bit convoluted, as you can see, but it was a good, tangible reason in De Witt's mind to involve himself in what he would otherwise have normally avoided. As usual, Rowan summarises the point in a far more concise manner than I can when he noted, DeWitt had also been compelled to accept the offer of an English alliance because he had already counted upon impressing Louis XIV with the availability of such a league to the States General. He had more and more depended upon the French king's desire to prevent the formation of a coalition of the two great maritime powers against France in order to persuade Louis to display moderation in the southern Netherlands. To reject the English proposal of an alliance when it was actually made would mean giving up an essential weapon in his diplomatic armoury. With that out of the way then, the third point is perhaps the most revealing. Charles II, the real instigator of the Triple Alliance, struck gold with the deal, because it promised a favourable outcome whatever the answer DeWitt gave. 
While Rowan may have argued that it is impossible to penetrate Charles's intentions with complete certainty, what we can do is give our best guess. On the one hand, Rowan would note that when it came to diplomacy, his, Charles's, purposes were devious, subtle and realistic. If DeWitt feared being trapped in a British alliance which offered him none of the benefits of the Franco-Dutch alliance and which incurred the wrath of France at the same time, what Charles feared was a situation whereby DeWitt publicly rebuked British overtures for an alliance. This would present the British as rejected in foreign affairs, which was bad, but it would also require a sheepish apology from Charles to his cousin, since he would be busted and he would have been seen to be operating against the French behind their back. Above all though, Charles feared this outcome because Louis would take one look at the developments and see, not British betrayal, but the intensity of Johann de Witt's loyalty. Charles didn't want to fail in his negotiations then, because it would have the certain effect of welding France and the Dutch even closer together. We already know that the Dutch were Charles's second choice, yet to give credit to him when he realised and accepted that he couldn't force Louis to break with the Dutch, since the reason Louis gave for not teaming up with England in mid-1667 was that a Franco-Dutch alliance had existed since 1662, Charles had a little apparent problem redirecting British policy. The outcome would be the same, but Charles accepted that he would have to take the scenic route. Charles's ultimate aim remained the dismantling of the Franco-Dutch alliance, and historians in my view give too little credit to Charles when they examine the lengths he was willing to go to achieve this. If we paint over the truth and tell the old story of De Witt's fears of France and his creation of the Triple Alliance, then not only do we discredit that Dutchman and paint him as a bit of a tool, but we also forget how intensely Charles burned with the desire for revenge after what had happened at the Medway the previous July. As Britain's king, it was his duty to avenge this dishonour and slight on British prestige. He could not allow the result to stand. Like a man who loses out on rock, paper, scissors, Charles insisted on a best out of three. He would launch another war against the Dutch, that was for sure, but he had to prepare the groundwork first. If he could ensnare the Dutch into an agreement which demonstrated their disloyalty towards France, which demonstrated that the Dutch did not hold close to heart the same values which had prevented Louis from betraying them before, then the Franco-Dutch alliance would crumble under the weight of Louis's seething sense of personal betrayal. After that, it was simply a matter of fanning the flames by emphasising the dishonour of republics and the greediness of merchants, and Charles believed he would be able to organise an Anglo-French alliance to take down the Dutch once and for all. What better revenge would there be than to launch an attack in tandem with the former ally of the Dutch and split the spoils between Paris and London while the distraught Dutch looked on? Then the Medway would be revenged and would be a distant memory. The power of revenge is thus a quality that we underestimate if we don't tell this side of the story. If we don't tell it, what happens next in our timeline will make very little sense. On paper, British humiliation would apparently disqualify any... Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market possibility of Britain teeming with their mortal enemy of only a few months before, unless Charles had either swallowed his pride and recognised the greater threat in Louis XIV, as history sometimes says, or conversely, if he was planning the ultimate betrayal all along. There was a very good reason why Johann de Witt did not believe that Charles genuinely feared the intentions of the French He never, for once, trusted the English, and he may well have feared that he was being played. This is a historical fact worth emphasising. But the point was that the cards were taken effectively out of De Witt's hands by this point. From this point onwards, his career, unfortunately, goes on a downward spiral. The tragic part of this spiral is, De Witt saw the vast majority of it coming straight for him, but he could do mostly nothing about it. It should be added as a word of caution that I haven't found too many historians who agree with my line of reasoning here. Most of the time they tend to spend less time on these few months of diplomacy than I do. But hey, we have like 20 episodes, so it's fine. But I thought you guys would appreciate this perspective. If we accept that Charles is the scheming opportunist, a gambling man, as Jenny Oglo called him in her book of the same name then it becomes easier to understand every subsequent event that followed this. When Louis sees red after discovering the secret clauses of the Triple Alliance, which requires its members to enforce a peace upon threat of war on whomever threatens that peace, be it Spain or France, Charles is not the dopey bystander he is often portrayed as, whom Louis has to persuade away and separate from the Triple Alliance so that France can launch its war of personal revenge against the Dutch. Charles is instead the string-puller himself. It is he who wishes to launch his own war of personal revenge against the Dutch, and it is he who waits in the wings for Louis to bite when the Sun King decides he cannot stand the insolence of the Dutch any longer. This is what Charles had waited for. It was why he had set up the Triple Alliance in the first place. Even down to the fact that he believed De Witt would have to accept the British alliance, and if De Witt tried to disguise the anti-French aspects of the Triple Alliance, which he did try to do, 
then Charles could always leak out the secret articles of it, which made it so offensive to Louis. Charles knew that Louis's youth, his aggression, his sense of majesty, his upbringing, his sense of personal honour, etc., would never stand for the revelations within the Triple Alliance secret articles, which bound the Dutch to pressure Paris by force if they tried to force more terms from the Spanish. Contrast this with De Witt, who, to be fair, may not have had as good an understanding of Louis's psychology as he could or should have. As far as De Witt was concerned, not only would Louis never have to find out about the secret articles, but surely the French couldn't be too offended if they did find out. After all, De Witt could reason, the secret articles only bound the Dutch to intervene militarily if Louis went against his old demands and asked for more from Spain, threatening to continue the war in the process. Since this eventuality had been talked over and effectively resolved during the course of 1667, and since Louis and De Witt had expressly negotiated a solution whereby such an eventuality would not take place, and Louis agreed to be satisfied with what he had gained so far, De Witt may never even have given these articles a second thought. If he had, then he would still have accepted them, because as we have seen, thanks to domestic pressures and his own need to bluff his French ally, De Witt believed he had no choice in late January 1668 but to sign up to the Triple Alliance. The alternative to this theory I have is that Charles instigated the Triple Alliance for the sole purpose of showing Louis that he could have friends too if he wanted them, since the Triple Alliance, don't forget, was Charles's option B, which he'd only gone with when Louis turned him down. I don't accept that Charles went to all this effort just to stick it to Louis in a game of one-upsmanship. When it comes time to negotiate with France for the war with the Dutch that would erupt in 1672, Charles is far too eager a bystander to simply be a bystander. If he was merely a bystander, then it is hardly likely that the Treaty of Dover in 1670, which we will come to, would have been signed with all the fervour, not to mention secrecy, that surrounded it. I appreciate that historians often get a lot of flack for applying their own ideas to people in history, but in my view Charles just seems like too much of a tool if we put everything in this era down to Louis. Louis was good, there's no doubt about that, but was he the conspiratorial schemer that some historians paint him as over the following months? I doubt it very much. What you can take from what I've said so far is really the idea that this upcoming conflict was not merely a Franco-Dutch war, though that was probably the most significant ingredient, and we are calling it that, it was also the build-up towards the Third Anglo-Dutch War, and if we forget that Charles had as much of a reason to want revenge against the Dutch as Louis did, then we forget why 1672 was so catastrophic for the Dutch. They didn't call it the Year of Disaster for nothing. It was in that year that the Netherlands' two most dangerous rivals would attack. Why they did so is a story that begins officially in 1668, when Louis finds out about the secret clauses and takes offence. But it can just as easily be traced back to 1654, when the First Anglo-Dutch War ended with such breathtaking ease, an ease which made the instigating of a second one seem like such a good idea. That Charles and Louis both had a hand in what was to unfold in European diplomacy is a theme we'll keep coming back to. 
Undoubtedly, and this is why I find the scheming Charles II theory so convincing, it was Charles that spilled the beans of the secret clauses of the Triple Alliance to some French agents chilling out in London. When word filtered back to France in late February of these secret articles, they caused a sensation, as Charles knew full well that it would. The incredible fact about the Triple Alliance is that after it was signed, DeWitt continued on as though it was business as usual. He did not view the Triple Alliance as incompatible with the Franco-Dutch Alliance, and on the day that it was signed wrote to a French agent that the Triple Alliance was directed against Spain. Still, DeWitt could maintain, peace was his primary concern. It was a motive which had led him to temper Louis' ambitions through gentle, respectful negotiations through 1667, and it now led him to create a coalition in case Spain refused to accept the victorious, but still reasonable considering his rapid success, Peace Treaty of Louis. DeWitt presented this version of the story as fact throughout early spring 1668, He had no reason not to, since as far as he was concerned, Louis need never find out about any clauses which bound the Dutch to halt France as much as it did to halt the Spanish. But again, the penny dramatically dropped in late February 68. Perhaps it was only once DeWitt learned of Louis' reaction to the secret clauses that he realised how mistaken he had been in signing them. Perhaps at the same time he expected Louis not to dwell too heavily on the issue, in an era of cynical power plays and the European balance. But if DeWitt expected Louis not to take it personally, he learned almost immediately, once the cat was out of the bag, that the Sun King had taken it very personally, indeed. By agreeing to the secret clauses, furthermore, DeWitt had not merely offended Louis, he also liberated the French King from any notions of friendship with the Republic, which, Louis claimed, he had sacrificed so much for in the past. So incendiary were the secret clauses to Louis that they had the effect of redirecting the entire foreign policy of France. Before this revelation, Louis had seen the Dutch as France's best ally in Europe and its critical friend in the quest for the Spanish Netherlands. Now De Witt was not a friend or potential beneficiary of this scheme. He was in the way of it. The same anti-Dutch propaganda Louis had deflected for so long during the Second Anglo-Dutch War now began to slowly seep into the Sun King's conscience. But let's backtrack a bit. It would be wrong, of course, to suggest that all French statesmen never once blinked in the face of the revelation that Britain, Sweden and the Netherlands were now engaged in an alliance. But DeWitt's version of events seemed to hold weight in the minds of most Frenchmen, who believed, correctly as it turned out, that DeWitt had no desire to go against France and that he did not trust London enough to place all his eggs in that basket. Echoing this sensible belief, the French foreign minister at the time wrote to his agent in The Hague, who seemed suspicious of the true motives of the Triple Alliance. The French foreign minister would say on the 29th of January 1668, a week after the Triple Alliance had been signed, that... Its principal foundation appears to me to be good and advantageous to the king, its manner somewhat distasteful, and the terms of the convention could be more seemly, but the sequel will prove whether the intentions with regard to this crown were good or ill. In which respect, Monsieur de Witt can contribute greatly by continuing to give his majesty indications of his friendship, in which he, 
Louis XIV, will always have confidence until we have evidence to the complete contrary. In time, this French agent was sending back glowing reports of Dutch loyalty with respect to how willing De Witt was to pressure Spain to accept French demands. Undoubtedly, micromanager that he was, particularly in diplomacy, Louis would have read these dispatches. There was thus no reason for him to worry. De Witt would have been a fool to have thrown the French alliance away for the sake of a shaky alliance with his cousin. Since De Witt was no fool... The Dutch must be acting with this curious triple alliance in the interest of the European peace, which they would collectively pressure Spain to accept. We can only imagine Louis's personal reaction when he first learned of the secret articles. We can only hope that he did not shoot the unfortunate messenger. Having lulled himself into a sense of what the triple alliance was all about, to see such a blatant alternative story, to see the secrets De Witt had been keeping was perhaps worse than having to make peace and hold back from a full-on conquest of the Spanish Netherlands, which some of Louis's generals persuaded him he could do by spring 68. The point wasn't whether he had even wanted to conquer all the Spanish Netherlands, or that he had declared himself satisfied with limited gains only the previous year. The point was, if Louis now changed his mind, the ally he had supported, through thick and thin since 1662, would strike against him, as though their alliance meant nothing, as though they had never been friends at all. That Louis would take this so personally demonstrates the fundamental aspects of his character which make him so fascinating to us today. We can imagine him seething when he hears of the secret clauses. We imagine his vow to take revenge on the Dutch. We can imagine how he let his own emotions get in the way. De Witt, the pragmatic merchant politician convinced the peace was a price worth paying with secret articles if necessary, could not have been more different to Louis XIV, a man to whom one's word of friendship meant everything, a man to whom betrayal was the most dishonourable, reprehensible and punishable act a man could commit. It wasn't merely the Dutch Republic that now enraged him. Louis became obsessed with the notion that Johann de Witt was public enemy number one. The revelations had been so shocking that no matter what damage control de Witt tried to apply in the months after, Louis saw him as the guilty party, as the man responsible for the secret articles, as the enemy of France. To understand how Louis felt about de Witt, try to cast your mind to Napoleon's return to France and the incredible reaction which followed in 1815, when Europe's powers declared war not on France, but on Napoleon Bonaparte himself. Louis would have declared war on Johann de Witt then and there, but in the era of the late 1660s, with communication as it was, his mood was tempered somewhat by the need to bring the war with Spain to an end, to consolidate what he had gained in the Spanish Netherlands, and to acquire a better understanding of what had happened over the previous months to make his ally betray him. This pragmatism explains why the war didn't merely erupt instantly on the revelations of the secret clauses. Louis certainly erupted on a personal level, but his revenge was a vow, not an immediate act, because he knew that France was not ready. Invading a historically neglected Spanish province was one thing. Invading the premier trading power of the world was quite another. So Louis internalised the offence, with the result being that he proceeded to blame the Dutch for everything that followed. 
The Dutch had established the Triple Alliance. The Dutch had threatened to make war on France. The Dutch had held his glory back. It was a blaming game so one-sided that Louis was still alluding to it in his memoirs, which he had created for the Dauphin's instruction, demonstrating the influence upon his thinking that the whole event had had upon him. Thus Louis built up his resources, made a plan to expand his navy and army, and drew closer to his cousin Charles II, who just so happened to be willing and able to aid Louis in his quest for revenge. Thus, Charles's plans for breaking up the Franco-Dutch alliance for his own ends had been achieved with dizzying levels of success. With Louis so personally affronted, there was no danger of the French ever siding with the Dutch again. Louis would never have it. To this diplomatic security, Charles could now add the fact that he possessed a triple alliance, which, well, he did not particularly want, but which he could hold out as a carrot to his cousin in the future. In other words, by making Louis believe that the Triple Alliance was a critical aspect of his foreign policy, Charles could squeeze concessions out of Louis when it came time for him to be persuaded out of that alliance. Louis would promise the world to get his cousin Charles on side, and to stick it to the Dutch with overwhelming force, and he would feel like he achieved a tremendous victory by his secret dissolution of the Triple Alliance, and the tempting of his cousin and other powers over to the side of France. But all the while Charles was there, armed with a saint's patience on a smug face, as he watched his trap catch the French king, and his war of revenge against the Dutch come closer to reality. That we know what would transpire over the next few years, i.e. a massive invasion of the Netherlands by France and Britain, makes De Witt's responses appear both pathetic and somewhat tragic. Once the revelations of the secret articles came out, there was little DeWitt could do, as a French Minister of State recalled when he wrote the following. The Minister of Holland, DeWitt, was then, in 1665, the object of the affection of the King and the admiration of France, until, seeing in the conclusion of the Triple Alliance that he was incapable of contributing to the conquest of the Low Countries, it, France, made him the object of hatred and aversion. Yet De Witt tried his best. When Count d'Estrades, the French ambassador to The Hague, asked De Witt why the articles had been kept secret in the first place, d'Estrades recalled to the French foreign minister that he was given the following logical explanation. Monsieur De Witt replied to me that he had refused to include this article within the public treaty, although England had urged it very strongly but that it was true that it was included among the secret articles, for there it was not to be seen by the public, and furthermore it had no force, since the king, of France, was satisfied with the alternative territorial sessions, as the king had again promised the states by his most recent letter. A week later, Destrades recounted Dewitt's ongoing rationalisation of Dutch behaviour to him, describing how, The King of England would not sign the treaty unless the states gave him prior assurance that the King, Louis XIV, would be content with the alternative, that the states did not wish it inserted into the treaty, for it is known to the whole world, and these terms might be interpreted by the public, in ways which could alter the existing good understanding between the King of France and the states. 
Such extracts go some way towards proving DeWitt's desperation in the weeks that followed. Desperate to plug up the leaks in his position, DeWitt first lamented and then grew to accept the severe offence taken by Louis. Louis could take issue with DeWitt's additional excuse that he did not believe the French king should take offence at an article which provided for an eventuality that would never take place, thanks to the Franco-Dutch negotiations of the previous months. If this were true, Louis could reasonably claim, and DeWitt didn't believe France would be irked by its contents anyway, then why were the clauses made secret at all? DeWitt then would have looked like the boy who got caught with his hand in the diplomatic cookie jar, and his case wasn't helped in the months after, since his solution was to bind Dutch security closer to the provisions of the Triple Alliance. DeWitt did this, or was forced to do this depending on what way you look at it, because by the summer of 1668 he had accepted that Louis would not be calling at the Republic's door again. If the French and Dutch were to be enemies, or at the very least have a cool relationship, then DeWitt believed it only made sense to tie his Republic closer to the coalition that Britain seemed to have so desperately sought. By doing this, of course, DeWitt persuaded himself that he was making the best of a bad situation, and he was, but he also allowed himself to be persuaded that London, that Charles, could be relied upon to come to the aid of the Netherlands in a time of war. This belief, as we'll see, would ultimately prove fatal. Louis' turnaround was thus complete. When France made peace with Spain in May 1668 under the Treaty of Aachen, also called by its French name, the Treaty of A la Chapelle, though Louis had made tremendous gains and satisfied his lust for glory, the real story was the Dutch. The revelations of the secret clauses in the ultimate betrayal perpetrated by De Witt helped Louis forget that he had been satisfied with his smaller gains in the first place. Soon the story went that the Dutch had held Louis's ambitions back, that the Hague had threatened war if Louis did not pull his forces back from the Spanish Netherlands, but also from Franche Comte along the Rhine and in Catalonia. In fact, as we saw, the Dutch never threatened war. De Witt never would have dreamed of such an act. The truth was, it was enough for Louis to see that even the possibility of such a threat was in the Dutch diplomatic arsenal for him to feel the betrayal. Thus history tells us the story that the Dutch threatened with their triple alliance and Louis was forced to cave. The truth as I've tried to demonstrate in this episode was far more complex, but also more inherently fascinating. Louis was not the only cog in play at the time, and while Charles II schemed, De Witt facepalmed and French armies marched across Europe, a line was crossed and an era came to an end. Soon it would be inconceivable to suggest that the French and Dutch could ever cooperate on the same stage. It was this event, this offended French king, this scheming British king, these secret articles and this beleaguered grand pensionary who set this new phase of European history into motion. It would be a phase that was characterised with drama, intrigue and resilience on the battlefields of Europe, where the Sun King cemented his legend and early modern Europe truly began.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.